0: What truly really matters is teachers' expertise.
1: The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your
0: boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated.
1: It reinforces cycles of disadvantage.
0: Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 44 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Oli Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, and pay respects to their elders past and present, and also to acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Alexander Renkel. Alexander started his studies with psychology and soon found himself working at the prestigious Max Planck Institute of Psychological Research in Germany. Since then, he has had many years of fascinating research in education, and he has co-authored over 350 publications in scientific journals, conference proceedings, books, and journals for practitioners. Alexander's main research areas include example-based learning, learning strategies, retrieval practice, learning by journal writing, and the two topics that we touch upon in this podcast, self-explanation and the new push to integrate cognitive load theory with self-regulated learning. It was a real honour to speak with Alexander because I'm a huge fan of his work and his writing is both clear and practical, offering wonderful insights into how students learn. He's an incredibly deep thinker and he has a rich array of highly valuable mental models around how learning happens. As a result, this is a very wide ranging discussion touching upon many ideas about how learning happens and has given me half a dozen or more new threads of ideas and theories that I'm keen to explore further. The main topic of today's discussion is self-explanation. That is, the role that students' internal dialogues play in their ability to learn from worked examples and during problem solving, as well as the way that teachers can effectively prompt these self-explanations. And as mentioned, towards the end of the interview, we touch upon that integration of cognitive load theory with self-regulated learning. Additionally, I'm once again very happy to share that this episode of the ERRR Podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. Cat is quickly becoming my favourite publisher of education books at present and they have some really exciting titles coming up as well as what's already on the shelves. Just today I was dipping into the book Retrieval Practice by Kate Jones which offered some really great practical strategies. One suggestion that spurred some ideas was the roll and retrieve grid. The idea here is that you take a 6x6 grid with 36 retrieval topics on it and have students roll two dice to select one of the boxes to retrieve. I was actually thinking whilst reading that you could even turn this into a game. And the student who claims the most territory across the grid, through their accurate retrieval, is the winner. Another book that I'm really looking forward to at the moment from John Cat is Zoe and Mark Ence's Generative Learning in Action. And I've also been talking up James Mannion and Kate McAllister's book, Fear is a Mind Killer, which is coming soon and which was the topic of last month's ERR. One of the things that I really love about John Cat is the number of real-life practicing teachers that they publish. All books that I've mentioned in this little segment just now have been written by people who are still in the classroom, and John Cat really has a focus on striking the right balance between theory and practice. If you're keen to explore their range, follow the link from the show notes and use the code ERRR30 for a 30% off discount on any John Cat book. And with that, dear listeners, let's jump straight into episode 44 with Alexander Renkel. Alexander Renkel, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. The first question we start always start with, Alex, is if you meet someone new and they say, Hi Alexander, what is it that you do? What's your
1: answer? Depends probably where I am. So if I do hiking in the Alps, I say it's something different as compared to being in a university context. But for now, uh, probably I should say that I'm a professor of educational and developmental psychology at the University in Freiburg in Germany. And my main interests are to analyze learning processes, learning processes that lead under certain circumstances to deep understanding. And also if the conditions are not perfect or the students are weaker, they show learning processes that don't lead to deep understanding. based on that, number B, to have tailored Instructional support procedures who specifically address the deficits in the learning processes that were shown by the students who don't end up with a good understanding. And then I get back to A. Hey, if I have this better condition, let's see whether the learning processes of all students were improved. Usually not. Whether there are negative side effects. Sometimes yes. And maybe that then you can again improve something else or improve your support procedure. That's uh, at least the type of research we are often doing and the type of research I like the most, so to say. So in, in some, I'm uh, maybe a cognitive guy, a cognitive science guy who is interested in applications or use inspired basic research is a term that we often use in Germany use inspired basic research yeah that means that you are not just curious about how things work but also because it's basic research but you has always the use in your back mind so to say and not uh, not just research on anything that you are just interested in and some research is more basic research where the emphasis is more the focus is more on understanding things understanding learning processes now the projects are more on the use side so and are more applied and go sometimes to school
0: and what is it about education research because you've done you've done so much research now what is it about it that really gets
1: you excited yeah, I think the use inspired basic research, that it's fun to do research like the, the basic researches, like understand learning processes better and understand knowledge structures better that are important for uh, problem solving and so on. And on the other side, you have this real-world background, this application thing. And I have to say that for me as a person who is relatively more on the basic side as compared to many other educational researchers, for me, all of the technological environments are interesting. Because if you transfer something that you found in an experiment in the lab to the classroom, there are so many context factors that might moderate. The effectiveness, or, or change the effectiveness of something, whereas in uh, in an electronic learning environment, more things are at least controlled. So, and that's a, a much better uh, place for application in the sense that you have better chances that what is what uh, was found to be effective in the lab is also effective in the electronic uh, learning environment or in the digital. environment.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, given that, you, you say a lot of your experiences are in university and these digital learning environments and things like that. But I do like to start by asking guests as well, what do you think should be the purpose of school-based education?
1: <laughs> That's a big question, of course. Uh, I, I don't think that I have a narrow view on that. I think there are many functions. So in Germany, at least, but I think also in, in other countries, uh, I don't know primary German literature about that, often it's uh, differentiated between a socialization fang- function, not not only learning, but also that you educate people to get responsible and, and, and socially competent members of the society, uh, people who can think two-sided and not uh, blinders, things like that, or in value education, things like that. I I don't res- do research on that, but uh, I think nevertheless it's a very important thing. It's probably a shared responsibility between schools and parents. And then I think also on the qualification function side, there are a lot of things to teach, not just the facts or the procedures in mathematics, but also or in physics, but also an understanding what what is mathematics or what is physics? What's the nature of science or what co- counts as evidence? And obviously, in mathematics, something different is seen as evidence as compared to physics. So empirical evidence is not very convincing in, in mathematics. <laughs> or uh, that you also to try to, to foster cross-subject skills. Don't know whether this is the right English expression like self-regulated learning skills or learning strategy skills or, or skills in self-explaining. We will talk about that too. And I think the problem is probably that school has a lot of, lot of things to do. And I think most teachers, at least in Germany, are aware of that. But I think they are not, not so good and not supported by how to prioritize these things. And honestly... I don't even know a framework that provides any guideline how to coordinate, to to orchestrate, to sequence, to prioritize all these different goals.
0: Yeah, it's tricky. It's left up to schools. Actually, the last people I interviewed for the podcast, they, James and Kate, propose a really lovely framework that brings together kind of like the socialization and the learning skills and the academic as well. So there's people out there doing it, but I agree on the whole and by and large, schools aren't provided much support to integrate all these multiple important functions. Yeah. So maybe now you can take us back to the time that you started looking into this really fascinating idea of self-explanation. What initially caused you to start exploring self-explanation?
1: Yeah, actually, I don't remember, (laughs) but I have some guesses at least. I think at that time in the in the 80s and in the 90s and of the last century, there there were a lot of interesting research going on in Pittsburgh, especially at the LRDC, the Learning Research and Development Center, and also from what how I was socialized by Weinert and Heinz Mantel, we always had a look at at this Pittsburgh research. And there were a lot of people who made in very interesting research, and one of these persons were, was Mickey Chi with the self-explanation study. And I found it just also interesting. But I think the push came by the following: Heinz Mandel proposed that I do some research on cooperative learning, which was on Vogue at that time. And I wanted to do something specific and I thought many cooperative arrangement like the chip saw arrangement, if you probably know that, contain a learning by teaching component. So at some places you teach what you have just learned about something to others. And I, I did research on this learning by teaching component. And learning by teaching can get effective by several active ingredients. So to say one is... The teaching expectancy, which means if you learn something because you have to teach it later, later, then you probably learn it more deeply. And probably then the self-explanation construct was perfect because you have later to explain the content. So probably you explain it to yourself in a more profound way if you learn it by yourself under a teaching expectancy. And I did some teaching, going by teaching studies in the first part of my career. They, they were primarily published in German. Some of it was also published in English. And so I, I got interested in this explanation. I also do interesting instructional explanations or, yeah, so or explanationists.
0: It's fascinating because, as I said in one of my first emails to you, I've really been grabbed by this self explanation research because you know, I see I see it in the classroom, you'll give students some learning resources, or you might explain something to them yourselves, or they'll read a textbook chapter, or they do some homework questions. And then after that, some of the students seem to be able to explain quite deeply what's happening in the problem, or or they've, they've really linked it to the principles that underlie it, they understand the concept, and if you ask them about it, they give great explanations. And other students just, they might have completed the problem correctly, but you ask them anything about something they've done and they just say like, oh i don't know or it's like it's it's like nothing happened and so this self-explanation research really opened a door for me into the minds of students and the differences between the experiences that students some students have as as compared to others so i'd love for you to take us back to your 1997 study which is now a a pretty famous and and well well-cited study, and tell us a little bit about what you were looking at in that study and what you found out.
1: Yeah, the so, uh, initial motivation was not so so far away from Mickey Chi's research. Mickey Chi had this uh, very fundamental study, but just with uh, very few subjects. So even my my study I had, and I think uh, she primarily looked then at four versus four or so, the bad and the good ones and uh, and also the time on task was not constant so the the good problem solvers the good learners invested much more time and so it was interesting to see because self explanation also costs time and if i restrict time on task or if i hold it constant to say it more technically so is there still an added value of self explanation so I, I did that and i found that there is uh, still an added value if you hold that constant. And I think both is also, that's not only a thing of of science to hold time on task constant. I always think in in the following terms, if you have this homework situation that you were just talking about, if some people invest more time in self-explaining, that's fine. And they, they take more time during homework study and others do just, write down the right numbers or the right solution. And then it's not a problem if uh, self-explanation takes time. But if you do something within your lessons, I don't know, do you have 45 minutes or back in Germany or 90 minutes sometimes?
0: Yeah, 50 or 100 for for us.
1: Yeah, so then it – although the the time counts. Do you want to invest the time for more problems or do you want to invest the time for less problems but longer – Doing explanations on it or self explanations on it. So it's not, not just a scientific issue controlling time. So as a teacher, you want to, you want to know how to invest the time you have in the best way. And so I hold the, the time constant and, and I found Actually, that also self-explanations pay off, and I found that there were also two ways to be successful. If you have a little bit more prior knowledge, it's good to anticipate what probably the next solution step is, so to check whether you're right. And others, uh, even if you have had not so good prior knowledge, you were able to to self-explain in terms of what is the underlying principle. These were probability calculation problems that you say this is a multiplication rule, so. Some were less explicit, more explicit. Some say just this is a multiplication rule. Others say this is a multiplication rule because I have two independent events and I want to know blah, 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 blah. So I found out that in this case, at least both was effective, even the shorter elaborations or the shorter self-explanations. And although that that the students get aware of what sub-goal do you reach by this step. And as you said, uh, about one-third of the students did this productive processing, and about two-thirds were not so active and were also not so successful in learning from this worked-out examples. And, and I think worked-out examples as especially not only because the uh, cognitive load theory says that Worked examples are effective, so it's good to combine worked examples with self-explanations, but it's also too good to, to have worked examples and self-explanation when you research the self-explanations because I think worked examples are very seducive to illusions of understanding. Probably you, you as a teacher often can observe that the students read a worked example and say, ah, easier. But if they should do it 10 minutes later at a not totally identical problem. They they get in trouble.
0: Yeah, that's great. So so you were, you basically gave students a set of worked examples that they could try to learn from, and then you observed you observed what they did by getting them to. Did you get them to speak out loud within this particular experiment?
1: Yeah, they they had to to think aloud. Think yeah.
0: aloud procedures, so you could tell how they were thinking, how they were explaining to themselves, and if they were explaining to themselves, and then you looked at. How the ways that they talk to themselves about the problems related to their outcomes. And just to summarize what you said then successful, the successful problem solvers fell into two camps there were the principle based self explainers who tried to always connect the underlying principle to the processes they were seeing and then there were the anticipatory self explainers the ones who would basically read down the page maybe even like cover the next line and think to themselves i wonder what's going to happen next and they'd make a hypothesis and they'd read the next line and check their hypothesis and you you mentioned there about a third of the students were either principle based or anticipatory self explainers and so you know the the message I took from this was like there's two-thirds of students who aren't that good at independently learning from these kinds of resources. The question that arose for me out of that was, why is it that some students are better than others? Where does that difference come from?
1: yeah, the the first idea is, of course, that it's a prior knowledge issue, given the general pattern of findings, but it's that's uh, not the whole story, and even in some studies, you find uh, not so high correlations between self-explanation quality and prior knowledge, but sometimes also because maybe because the students did not differ so much in, in prior knowledge. Prior knowledge is important, but I think there are also other things, especially in mathematics. If you have this example with your students doing homework, I think many students Although many females, unfortunately, have this low negative self-concept. They say, oh, math, I'm, I'm happy with getting to the right number. So I'm not really able to, to get to a deep understanding. And uh, so and, and why should I do that? So, And that, that might also be a factor. Then it might be a factor how the instruction is. So also in more practical projects, I make the experience if you have a teacher who demands things like that, then the people get also habitual habits to do that. But if the teacher never demands things like that, they are not used to do that. They say, why should I do that? And I've made the experience, if you work together with teachers to introduce things like that, one of the first questions of the students is, even of the better students, Do we also have to provide explanations in the tests that we get? So you have to to have also incentives so that they they do it. That's uh, probably in Australia. Is it not from Australia? This constructive alignment models?
0: I'm not sure where that comes from, but you mentioned it in an email. I hadn't heard of that before. I mean, I I understand the principle, but I hadn't heard that term used before.
1: So for the listeners, uh, uh, constructive alignment is a little bit more complicated as simplified but if you try to teach for understanding but then later test your test is not tapping on understanding you counteract to your to your efforts as teachers to get the students to an understanding and so constructive alignments that the test has to be aligned to the learning goals and to the learning methods and both must be directed towards understanding so that and otherwise People try to be parsimonious in their effort, try to avoid effort and say, "Well, why should I self explain if I don't need it in in the in the test?" and of course it's also a matter of do you do they know these learning strategies and learning strategies skills, so to say, or self explanation skills? So I think it's not a not an easy answer it's uh, it's a it's a whole bundle of factors. That might lead to that.
0: that makes sense. So so if I try to summarize what you those factors you mentioned there, one was does the teacher demand it, and that does the teacher create opportunities for these self-explanations to become kind of habitual or habits for students? The second was, does the test demand it? Or and do you have that kind of constructive alignment going there? And then the third one is, does the student know how to do it? So that's you know three really important questions in terms of trying to help students to learn to better self-explain.
1: And maybe also self-concept, or the, uh, some might call it, you have a fixed mindset. So whether you say uh, really understanding mathematics is not my cup of tea, so to say, or not within my capabilities, and so. And so um, I'm happy with with getting the right numbers.
0: That's great. Will I be able to understand it? That's a, that's, a, that's a great point. So we've kind of talked about, you know, the two-thirds versus the one-third of students who don't versus do self-explain. We've talked about some of the potential causes for differences in why some students can self-explain and some can't. I think the next thing for us to talk about is how can we actually get students to self-explain, that especially that two-thirds of students who who don't tend to do it as naturally, and and we can look at this at two levels. We can look at it as the at the instructional level, or the the individual problem or individual example level. How can we get students to, in this particular problem, self-explain? And then there's kind of the more change the learners level, which is how can we get these students to become better learners and develop to develop, as you said, the habits of self-explaining. So maybe we can start with just. And the, the research, when I was looking at it, kind of is split into these two kind of areas. And most of the research started at the problem level. So maybe we'll start there right now. So at the, at the problem level, what are the kind of things that researchers have done to try to help students to better self-explain on a given worked example or, in a, given, or a given problem?
1: I think the majority of studies uh, did something that is simple, relatively simple to implement, and they gave prompts. So prompts are uh, questions or little tasks. And let's concentrate also on on the principle-based self-explanations. I uh, I don't want to deviate too long about whether the self-explanation construct has become a, a too fussy construct. Uh, let's let's stay with the principle-based stuff.
0: So principle-based ex- self-explanation, by that you mean students are trying to understand the principles that underline all the different steps, for example, in the, in the problem. That's, that's one of the ways of self-explaining that we mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, exactly. If there's a solution step in probability that you say this is the addition rule or the complementarity rule, if in, f- in physics that you relate the re- solution steps to the Newton law or uh, but but even in, in totally different in arts you can say this painting has this style because uh, this style had this the uh, Kandinsky picture has this colors in in, in squares or so or uh, even in 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 religious studies or in ethics whether it's a de- deontologic argument or consequentialistic argument whether something is morally or ethically correct or so, I, I think you can take it very broadly. It's not just mathematics. So, and um, and what what the typical prompts are is is that uh, the the students are encouraged to say what the principle. They they read something an an ethical argument and then they are encouraged to say. What, what kind of argument is this? And then they are expected to say this is a deontolo- deontological argument or a consequent civilistic argument, or uh, they should say which ma- mathematical theorem or which uh, physics law or whether this is mimicry in biology or, or camouflage in biology or something like that. And sometimes these are more open questions that you should explain it. Sometimes they are also very general question that you, you can use in, in in every domain. The question might be just what is the underlying principle of this feature or of this step? And sometimes it's more more domain specific. And typically it it contains also more support for the students. Sometimes it's even very simple that there's a list of mathematical rules and you can select it from the list, from the menu. And 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 all other things in between, so to say. Or sometimes are, if it's what we once did, we had very difficult self-explanation prompts, and we found they were hardly able to to answer them correctly. So we had first uh, a type of instruction explanations with gaps in it. We called it supported or scaffolded uh, self-explanations. And only in the second step, after getting this fill in the gaps, stuff uh, thing they had to do it on their own. and so there are many possibilities to to formulate these questions. Some are more supportive, some are more open. And what's so my overall uh, reading of the literature is that the safer bet are the more structured ones because you they are tailored to the content and it's more clear what you expect from the students. But there's also this principle. As less support provide uh, as less support as possible, but as much as possible. Uh, other people call it the assistance dilemma or the expertise reversal effect or so. And then it's probably a good idea to tailor is how, how good are your students or are you in the beginning of working on a topic or are you already proceeded? then you can have more general things uh, if you are a freaker students. Sometimes you might consider to do, to call it in English, internal differentiation in a classroom. Is this an expression that makes sense? That you have uh, different worksheets for different groups of students, or So you might also provide the, the weaker students with worksheets that uh, have uh, more scaffolding in in the or more more direct. So it's more clear what they should say to the self explanation prompt or. They can select from a list and uh, whereas the stronger students get more open questions. So,
0: That's great. So, yeah, the picture you've painted there is with these self-explanation problems, the main idea is to get students to connect the principle to the example they're looking at. And you can do that on a spectrum of support. So at the most supported end, probably you've got like a multiple choice problem and you're like, which of the, these three principles relates to this Quest example. And then slightly along from that, you've got to fill in the blank. So you say, Alexander solved this problem because he knew that the sum of all of the angles within a triangle equaled, and then they fill in the number at the end or something like that. And then right at the other end, you say, you just have an open prompt, which is, what's the principle underlying this? Or even further than that, you have no prompt at all, and you hope they've learned to do it themselves.
1: Yeah, exactly. But uh, the main thing, as exactly you said, is that uh, in the end, the student should have a knowledge structure where they do not just know the principle, maybe just as a fact, but they know how to map this principle to specific problem cases, vice versa, to analyze problem cases in terms of the underlying principles.
0: Mm. Okay. That's really interesting. I, I I was recently trying to write a, a chapter that summarized some of these ideas on self-explanation. And and I've sent it to you. And I also sent it to John Sweller because it was for this forthcoming book on cognitive load theory that I just finished today, actually, which was pretty exciting. But anyway, this chapter on self-explanation, when I sent it to John, John Sweller, he he didn't like it very much. And that was because he had a very specific critique of this self-explanation effect that I'd love to put to you now to hear your response. Basically his critique was as follows. Self-explanation approaches will either always be redundant or always be insufficient. So, let me explain this. So, if you ask a student which principle are they using, or which principle is being used within this example, and they can answer the question, then the question itself was redundant because they already knew what the principle was, so what was the point of asking the question? So that's why they're either redundant, or if you ask the student the question, and they're not able to answer it, you know, what's the principle, and they don't know the answer, then asking the question itself was insufficient and you may as well have just said to them the principle underlying this question is xyz and so this was the argument that john had and i thought that you know that's a very that's a very interesting argument it seems to make quite a lot of sense and yet we know that there is something else that's going on here whereby students and you know, research shows it's not necessarily just related to background knowledge. So there must be something else, some other X factor that's explaining the benefits of this self-explanation effect. So what's your what's your response to John Swell's criticism there?
1: I first want to say that uh, I have a uh, uh, deep respect, a uh, great respect uh, for John, not only for his uh, scientific achievements and for his grit uh, during his career to to push this perspective into the community. But also, uh, I think he's a great person. A very I, li- I like John a lot. And our thinking goes hand in hand to large uh, degrees. But in certain areas, we definitely think quite differently. And uh, we both know that. And here, I totally disagree. And uh, I think I have a lot of good arguments. First of all, uh, something, uh, an observation so one of the, the milestones of cognitive load theory was a paper written in 1998 by John Jeroen van Merienburg and Fred Pass, and it was also related to instructional design. And then tw- 20 years after, or, or exactly 21 years after, they, they had this additional paper. So cognitive load theory and instructional design 20 years after, what are the developments in or something like that, in uh, Educational Psychology Review, published. And again, John, Jeroen, and Fred. And interestingly, they had a, a subsection on self-explanation in it, and, and they said that it, it's uh, this self-explanation research did not originate within the cognitive load framework, but it's meanwhile, was taken in, probably also by me, because I did quite some study referring to both of these things. And even they say that prompting might be a, a good idea. So I assume that John has not written this subsection and had to be convinced by Jeroen and Fred to have it in the paper, <laughs> obviously. Otherwise, the discrepancy is not explainable, Pro- probably John had a little bit of, as we say in Germany, toothache, uh, with this uh, section, nevertheless, it's another contradiction to to cognitive load theory in in this authoritative paper now, but to John's very personal opinion. Secondly, uh, empirically, he's not right because there are meta analyses like the one of uh, Bisra. She has in my view a little bit a uh, too stretched view on self explanation, but she found that prompting self explanation has on average, a good, af- and a good effect. You never found homogeneous effects. It's always some studies who found more or less effects. And it depends always on context factors like how structured they are and does it fit to the uh, prerequisites of the students. And there's also this meta-analysis by Riddle-Johnson and colleagues uh, focusing on mathematics. And she also found positive effects. So uh, empirically, he's not right. And uh, if I take John's argumentation serious, I would even end at a paradox where, because then you can say even working on problem never does make sense. If you can solve it, you cannot learn much more. And if you cannot solve it, you can also not learn much. doesn't make much sense. And even uh, John uses in his studies this problem-example pairs, by ah, the example-problem pairs. And a further argument is with respect to telling just the student the the, the principle is tricky because there's also much research, also we do that, that if you provide explanation to students, they do do not necessarily work well or function. They must be tailored to the prior knowledge of the student, and self explanations are because they are out of the prior knowledge of the student. They they are by definition, tailored to the prior knowledge of the student. And they must be processed, there must something be done. If you explain something to a student and he looks at you and say, good teacher, and then thinks of something else and don't do something with this explanation, this explanation is for awareness, it's not effective. So it's, it's not so easy. And and in the end, you can always say uh, the best thing would always be even if you get an instruction instruction explanation, it's best that you reconstruct uh, or re-explain it uh, to yourself. And and a final argument is even if you have uh, have a correct uh, answer to the self-explanation prompt, it may have uh, functions. For example, a strengthening of the Principle, or a connecting an additional case to a principle. Maybe I explain that in a minute. So, uh, how can you detect that a, that a principle applies to a problem that you have? If you are a very good student or an expert, you see it in quotation marks quite through the problem formulations, through, through the surface features, the numbers. So you see, ah, that's the Newton, that's a Newton problem. So, But that's, that comes with time. So if you are not as so proficient as many students are, these multiple cases connected to your principle helps you a lot. Because you say, ah, this is similar to the one problem we had yesterday or the week before. And there, the principle X was relevant. And you have this reminding. There's also a lot of research and analogical reasoning research who shows that this indirect access to principles are important. So there is a function. You have an additional case. And also, it's not necessarily, if you come up with the right Answer sometimes also you have to think about it. It's not that you retrieve it immediately. So, And then there's also an added value because you did some activation, you did some thinking, you did some clarification for yourself. And if you are not right in, in a real instructional environment, not just an experiment, you often get feedback or additional hint by the teacher. And then it might also be productive. If, if even, if your first uh, attempt to answer a self-explanation question was not successful. So there are many arguments against John's argument, I think, empirically and logically and theoretically.
0: That's great. In terms of that cases thing, a good example of how Uh, novices need multiple cases in order to build up the kind of corpus or the collection of examples from which they can derive the the principle or really understand the principle. Listeners will have, will be familiar with those, are you a robot tests where it says, select all the boxes that have a car in it. You know what I'm talking about? Like on Google, before you submit a form, this is basically Google getting people to train their artificial intelligence, how to recognize cars by providing the artificial intelligence with a whole set of cases of examples of what cars look like. So the artificial intelligence learns to generalize from this whole wide set of cases what a car is and what a car looks like. So that's like an example of that, that cases to principle connection, which I I think is a really important point. And I found probably one of your strongest arguments in there, which is something I thought of myself was the paradox of of the claim that um, it's either redundant or it's insufficient in that that would, that can also apply to problems themselves and any generative or learning activity. So that's a really interesting one as well. You also talked about like a student just listening to a teacher's explanation and they might nod along and say, oh yeah, I get it. But then when they start to do it themselves, they maybe haven't quite paid attention in in enough detail to be able to replicate it themselves. And to that end, I'd I'd kind of the way I'd phrase it is there's an attentional benefit to self-explanation prompts. That is, they provide the teacher with a way to cue the student's attention to perhaps a particular line of the solution or really the crucial sticking point in the question and make the student go, Oh, okay, this is the part of the question that I really need to pay attention to. And then, and you talked about Riddle Johnson's research there. I think some of the main findings from her research were. The real benefit comes from the self-explanation prompt followed by the student self-explanation then complemented by the instructional explanation because that makes sure that even if a student explains it incorrectly for themselves, their brain's still queued in and turned on to receive that explanation with even more detail. So, that, so yeah, just a few little responses there to kind of build on what you said.
1: May I also build on, on your last remark? Yeah. So, uh, we also... Did some? I, I, I totally agree what you said, but uh, I've also learned from my studies that it's sometimes uh, tricky if the feedback is too easy accessible. When we have a prompt, and then they got experts' solution of the prompt that was easily to click on, then we found empirically that the self-explanation efforts were reduced. So the effect is: why should I take so much? Brain effort into it if I can just click and have the perfect answer. So that's a that's a danger. So maybe it's always good, especially in, in a conversation, to maybe first provide an additional hint or or not not to, to give the students the feeling if I don't get it immediately right, the teacher or the system or somebody else will present me the gift.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I I mean, teachers say that in classrooms because often the procedure in the classroom is teacher does an example, puts up a question, students try the question, teacher goes through the answer right? And if students quickly learn that, you know, the goal is to have the right answer in their book at the end. So, I've spoken to students who just sit there during the problem solving time, they say, why would I bother solving this problem? The teacher's about to write it, the answer on the board anyway, I'll just copy it down then. <laughs> so, that's, yeah. that's a parallel yeah. example there. Maybe a way around that is kind of the, the idea of intermittent rewards or inter- intermittent solutions provided. So, students actually, you make it a bit random, as to when they're going to receive the instructional explanation. So you always provide the prompt, but only sometimes do they get the full explanation at the end and they don't know when that's gonna come. So that could be a way around it, another thing to test. All right, so this sounds like a great idea, but I imagine there are probably some common mistakes that teachers would make. Are there any, in trying to in trying to kind of implement this idea of self-explanation prompts, are there any common misinterpretations or misapplications that you've seen?
1: At least German teachers by themselves are hardly doing this stuff. But when I when I gave workshops or talks to teachers or teacher educators, often I, I found that they are easily misinterpreting what I, what, I'm, what I've told. Sometimes, if they try to come up with own uh, prompts, they don't really have this this idea of connecting the principle with the case. So that's. Really internalized, or sometimes declaratively, they have the knowledge that this should be the case. But it's not so easy to have these good prompts that really guide the students to really connect the cases to the principle. And some say that's what I'm doing all the time, and then I am astonished. And then you ask them, "Yeah, why do you do that all the time?" They say, "Yeah, I often ask in the class why the solution like it is." But the why question is not always answered in terms of the principle. And secondly, I think also connected to your remark, just if you do it in the whole class, many people sit there and say, ah, John and Anna, they always are able to answer the teacher question. And then they may do self explaining or they may engage in self explanation. But two thirds of the class uh, is silent in the head so to say and so uh, self-explanation must be really a prompt for everybody so i think or at least that in 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 diets in diets or pairs of students that they try to figure it out and a last uh, misunderstanding is uh or, or tricky or, or one should keep these things apart In the typical self-explanation situation, you have the principle introduced, at least as you have some basic knowledge of the principle, and then you connect it. That's one option. The other option is that you have two cases or more cases, and you compare them, and you induce the principle. And that is also a way you can go, but that's a different way. And you should not mix it up because... The prompts must be different, and you have to do other decisions. So, like if I want to have an induction of, of from two examples, how similar or how different should these be? Or how do I s- uh, support this compare and contrast what is similar, what is different? So, I think that's it. both options can work, but you should be aware what you are doing very explicitly because. The need to take other actions as a teacher to optimize the process of mapping something that is there or of inducing it. And uh, people, teachers don't, uh, German teachers don't hold these two things so well apart.
0: That's really interesting. The idea of mapping something versus inducing it. That kind of relates to what I anticipate as being one of the the easiest to make mistakes or easiest to make misinterpretations of this self-explanation effect. And this is in many ways due to the name of it, the self-explanation effect. What I'm what I'm worried about in terms of this effect and what I have seen at times, not necessarily when teachers are trying have heard of the self-explanation research effect literature, but just in teaching in general, is that The danger of thinking that the self-explanation effect means that students teach themselves the principle in the first place. So what we've been talking about today is students already know Newton's first law and second law and third law. And the question says, which of Newton's laws applies in this situation? But the students already know those laws. The The thing I'm worried about is, you know, students are given an example of a car crash and then they say, you know, what's Newton's third law based upon this example? And the student's never been taught it, and therefore they're expected to self-explain it. So that's another related to kind of mapping something versus inducing it. We can't expect students to teach themselves the principle in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that goes hand in hand with, with what I've just tried to explain, yeah, that it's very well aligned. So your observation that they don't, don't hold these uh, two things apart and these are different things, yeah. yeah
0: totally fantastic so that's the the first idea in terms of helping students to learn in the moment dear listeners i have a particularly exciting announcement for you this episode you may have noticed in recent episodes a few mentions about me working on a book well it's almost here over the past months i've been slaving away under the careful guidance of the creator of cognitive load theory john sweller to put together a book that i hope that you are going to love it's called cognitive load theory in action and it aims to be both a comprehensive and concise overview of cognitive load theory with classroom-ready practical strategies. The examples about how to use cognitive load theory offered in the book span a whole range of subjects, everything from maths to English to geography, economics, physics, art, physical education, biology, German, chemistry, and more. It's super close, and in fact, I'm just putting the finishing touches on the book right now and hope to have the manuscript to the publishers by the end of this week. This month, all patrons will receive an excerpt from that book, The Chapter on Self-Explanation, complete with a few extra notes from this discussion with Alexander Renkel today. I have another exciting announcement about a deal I've managed to organise for patrons in relation to the book, but I'll save that announcement till next episode. Thank you to all those who've been helping support the Each Will Our podcast as patrons to date. And if you'd like a practical and actionable summary of how to do self-explanation in your classroom, go to patreon.com forward slash errr. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show. Now, back to this stimulating discussion with Alexander Renkel. Fantastic. So that's the, the first idea in terms of helping students to learn in the moment or in a specific example how to self-explain. But really the question that I'm most interested in and the one that I emailed you about right at the start was can we help students to become Better self-explainers in general and for the rest of their lives. Can we bring these two thirds of students to make them more like this one third of students? I'm wondering, Alexander, to start us off with. Do you think that this can be done? Can we turn less successful self-explainers into, generally speaking,
1: more successful self-explainers? Yes, we can. I okay. think sure. to to cite Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh... I think it's not easy. So uh, strategy trainings uh, are always difficult, and but there's a lot of literature also on on strategy training. And we when we emailed, we mainly talked about uh, specific attempts also from my group to do little training sessions, self-explanations. But I think we can also have a, a broader view on on this issue, and to borrow what has been found in in all this literature from the 80s on, on learning, teaching strategies, so on strategy training interventions. And maybe I, I, I would like to introduce now a, a distinction that is mainly made in, in German language literature, and I, I don't know it in, in the international literature, but I found it very helpful. The, the differentiation between direct training and indirect training. Direct training means that you really teach it, that you explain what self-explanation is, make an informed training principle, you, you talk about the function of it, you model it, you show how to, to do it, that's also uh, another component. Then you apply it to multiple cases, so uh, to learning in mathematics, to learning in, in another subject, to learning from an example to self-explain while solving a problem and, and things like that and that's direct training i think that's important that they know this strategy that they know the sense of it and and then the indirect training is also very important that at least in germany the sometimes it's a case they have what they call a, a pedagogical week or educational week, which is a break with a normal instruction, and then they do something special like a learning strategy training. And then they continue with the ordinary instruction and uh, this never works because it's not connected to to the instruction. Indirect the training means that then the instru- the, uh, the general classroom instruction mm-hmm. is structured in a way I think you made a similar formulation uh, some time ago, that it's necessary, it's required, and there is room for that. So that you you, uh, also provide the students incentives or uh, room for application of these strategies. And you talk about, you give room to talk about the strategies to apply them. And I think it's very important if you want to make this, students to habitual self-explainers to combine both to directly explicitly teach it and then to take it to 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 take it up again in, in your ordinary instruction and say not just solve these problems but also that they should explain it that you say not praise the people for the correct number as you said before so the teacher is just wanting the correct number, or is focusing on, the, on that the teacher also values for correct explanation, or values also a little bit incorrect explanations, which are not a bad bad idea. Or if there are probability with replacement and without replacement, if the people inter, uh, if the students intermixes said and give uh, the wrong explanation, that you say this is a, a, a an important point now where we are, and you gave an an explanation that is valid, but for another case, and, and things like that. This is uh, the indirect training, or that you include it in your tests, so the constructive alignment part. So, and I think only it's only successful to combine these two things, or it's only promising, really promising, if you combine a, a direct training and uh, this indirect training.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, the, the next thing I'm really interested about is, I mean, it's, it's hard to research these kinds of things. Now, because the question I asked you was, can we turn less successful learners and self-explainers into more successful learners and self-explainers over the long term? Let's, let's just talk a little bit now about what a, what a study might have to look like in order to establish that students have become better self-explainers in a general sense what what would we need to see in that study and why is it hard
1: yeah probably it connects to my my answer probably you need a a training we developed trainings but these were just kick off trainings of 45 minutes so i would guess that you probably you need a, a longer initial direct training uh, of I, I don't know exactly how long but more than 45 minutes or or, or to 30 minutes that we We did. Maybe that you have three or four weeks where included in your math instruction you always uh, make little training sessions and then probably you need this phase of indirect training, you foster it and probably you need a little bit of booster sessions that have provided, uh, shown to be useful in other strategy research that you have booster sessions to take up again what What's what is the benefit of self-explanation when it is really superfluous? So, so John is not absolutely wrong. There are if you have learning activities that primarily aim at automation of mathematical procedures, it doesn't make sense to do the self-explanation anymore. So so that they, that they refine their knowledge when to self-explain when not and so on in, in these booster sessions. And I think such a, a really good study has at least a time span of one year or so to see whether it's really established. And even worse, if you do it in mathematics, then the students say, yeah, Ollie is a special teacher. He always wants us to self-explain this uh, stuff. But fortunately, the biology teacher and the physics teacher uh, don't require from me this nasty stuff that takes a lot of mental effort. And so uh, ideally, you would combine with your colleagues and, or you would sometimes teach math and physics then you can combine it by yourself. And so an ideal study would also have connected teachers that work together and all have this common goal. By the way, I think that's also a, a general problem in school, at least in Germany, in the standards, it's said that students should learn self-regulated learning skills. And self-explanation skills are part of that. But nobody is responsible for it. But, but the, the math teachers, yeah, probably the, the German teacher, or your English teacher, that's the, this is the corresponding. They do reading stuff. They, they can do the strategy training. I have so much stuff to teach math math to teach so i can do that and the german teachers ah, i have also a lot of things to do and and nobody really does it and that's also a reason why connecting teachers that they all are uh, committed to the same goal would be very important and that would be a tough study element. Mm. mean
0: i mean to me this seems like a really important thing to research this this big question is is it Is anyone going to do this, Alexander? Is anyone going to find out whether we can teach students to be better self-explainers in a general sense? Do you you anticipate someone's going to manage to write a grant proposal and get the funding and work with a few hundred students over a year?
1: What are are your hopes? I don't think so. But uh, I think there's a lot of strategy training research out and I, I don't think this is so different. So if you take this... So there are, there are these principles of direct training like use modeling, use informed training, use varied uh, tasks and context, use social arrangement. That's also a question you have in mind, I know, of course. And I think you can use these principles and you can use the principles of indirect training. And I, I think then you have a good chance to be successful. The really tough part is to connect with other teachers, I think.
0: So you mentioned cognitive strategy stuff. I just got this book, Cognitive Strategy Instruction, Presley and Wollashin, or I don't know how to pronounce that surname, Wollashin?
1: I have no idea.
0: But how is, and you, you mentioned this just then, How how is this cognitive strategy instruction, which really kind of seems to have. Gotten going in the 80s and things like that, and Barak Rosenschein did some, you know, meta-analysis or well, not meta-analyses, but reviews of the research. We could say on this kind of stuff. How is this related or not related? And how is self-explanation just another cognitive strategy? Does it fit under this umbrella, um, or is it different somehow?
1: It depends. As written in, in our written email exchange, I think that people use uh, self-explanation, meanwhile, for many many things and many many things that you should not call explanation and so but if you remain with this principle-based thing that many people not only me see as the core of uh, self-explanation it's a cognitive strategy and then presley or Dinsmoor is another guy on the international level or there are also in germany uh a lot of successful interventions with this learning strategies, something that's called text de- de- detectives that were were implemented. And I think you can you can take these principles from Michael Presley, it's a little bit older literature, from Dinsmore, newer, or also I think there's also interesting German literature that is unfortunately not always in translated in English or published in English outlets. And you can take these principles to train self- explanation. I don't see a principal difference between other cognitive strategies and self- explanation in principle you can also say if you have really this this case where the principle is known and then you relate it to additional cases, then it's a type of what others call elaboration strategy to bind the new thing that you encounter to your own prior
0: knowledge. Mm. Okay. In, in trying to think about what it would look like to try to train students to do self-explaining in the long term, I was kind of hunting through the literature and looking for the kinds of questions that we could ask students. And I wanted to present some of them to you and and see your thoughts on these and if you think they're good kind of questions that we could use or if, if there's some other ones that you you could think of. So I found some prompts that are in line with process. And so this is in probably in kind of maths questions, physics questions, chemistry questions, things like that where there's a fixed process. You could start to build in the repetitive questions every lesson when students are studying worked examples. And these could be questions like, Notice questions, you know, what parts of this page or this solution are new to me, reason questions like, how does this new piece of information help or monitor questions? Like, is there anything I still don't understand? So that's the kind of the process questions. And there was kind of connection prompts that I found. And these were things like, how are X and Y similar or what's the difference between X and Y and also how does this new information tie in with things that I've learned before? and then the third one was kind of anticipatory prompts so things like what will happen next and what would happen if so i guess my my idea in this in this range and or in this area and the idea that i saw coming out in the literature was using carefully crafted questions like these repetitively over and over again in the classroom the teachers doing that the students learn to internalize these questions and begin to slowly and habitually ask them of themselves Number one, are these the kind of questions you'd have in mind for this kind of approach? And number two, is this your also your understanding of how these questions might be internalised?
1: Yes, I think they can help and they can be internalised and I think they can be successful. But the downside, I, I rarely think of whether something is just good or just bad. So I always think have always advantages and disadvantages whatever you do, almost ever. So if they are very general, they are pretty demanding we talked about different kinds of self explanation prompts before if they are just general they require that the students are able to to, to answer them on their own but if the, the topic is really tricky then how are x and y similar and what is the difference between x and y might be very difficult then you might have to tailor it for example you say please compare and contrast or What is similar and what is different with respect to the criteria A, B, and C? And then you have more scaffold. So I'm not sure whether they are, take John's uh, expression sufficient in in the terms that they they may be a little bit difficult if they, if they are not tailored. And secondly, if you uh, use them again and again, I ask myself whether they always fit to the, to the topic you have or to the main difficulty in the topic. Sometimes, for example, you want to have a differentiation that the students understand. Is it a probability problem with replacement or without replacement? Then it's very important, and, and they easily intermix that. And it's very important that you have this connection problem. And other things, who are if you teach about other things, where people tend to have misillusions of understanding, these monitor prompts might might be good, or these anticipation prompts. I think they have totally different functions depending on if you have, for example, word examples. These anticipative reasoners who learn about the goal structure of certain types of problems, as what what is the next sub goal or step to achieve. But if you ask that if you have a a text to be learned, then what probably comes next in the text is a question to foster the the global coherence. So the students understand the can you say red thread in in a in a thing or
0: thread. Yeah you could say the thread, yeah.
1: Thread, yeah. And so I think it's important as a teacher to Think about what is the most important cognitive process that helps them to overcome the main problems with a certain type of... And then if you have this variety of questions, then you can choose those who fit best and you can apply them This always. But I'm also not sure whether you can leave the students alone, especially the weaker students, or whether they need help with compare with respect to these or those things or if you said what is new that you say we already had in the last lesson and what is the new now so you to help them to to recapitalize what they already knew and do you understand or is it
0: yeah yeah totally i've just connected this to something else another principle that we talked about earlier and that was the idea of mapping cases to principles. So you said then one of the issues of having so many questions is they might not always apply in all situations. So it might be hard for students to work out which question to apply in which situation. And that reminded me of, you know, it might be hard for students to work out what principle applies in this example. And so by analogy, it's probably makes sense as well for us to over time mix up and use all these different prompts and provide scaffolding and support for students to work out when, which prompt is appropriate. And then slowly over time, they'll build up a collection in their long-term memory of pairs of prompts and kind of questions that the prompts were appropriate for. And then they slowly learn which prompt is appropriate in which scenario.
1: So uh, I think here the, the principle of informed training comes in that you not just tell them this is good, do it, but they also know when to do it or some call it conditional knowledge. where, why to use this strategy. And it's also a very important. We we call it sometimes in, in German language the the valley of tears in the beginning. <laughs> I like that. You have you have your strategies and somehow you came through with the strategies up to to a certain point, or it's, it overall you're doing fine in school. So, and then you should change your strategies. And that's similar if you play tennis or badminton or, or what else. So, and somebody says that you hold your racket the wrong way. And if you hold it differently, so it will, you will get to the valley of tears. It will get worse. It's effortful. It's horrible. And also with with time you see the profit, and that's also very important to tell students that that if you get, go to new strategies, this will be effortful, this will be not necessarily immediately be rewarding or or, or putting you to a higher level, and you can take this metaphor, like from sports or other things, and then it's also important to teach them when exactly to use it because if they use it at at the wrong wrong occasions they 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 give the strategy up because they say it's effortful that's not my cup of tea i don't usually do that and it's it doesn't really make sense so i think this principle of informed training and this conditional knowledge is very important to emphasize this
0: Okay, so that that kind of, I'm just going to make a bit of a joke here, a bit of a meta joke. Perhaps we need self-explanation prompts for self-explanation prompts. So we need to ask our students, which of the self-explanation prompts do you think is most appropriate in this situation? Maybe that's the the next step.
1: Yeah, or sometimes I didn't think about that and I didn't study on that. But if the student are a little bit more advanced, you can have them design self-explanation prompts. but. Could also be possible. So imagine your friend was ill and you bring him at home or is ill, worked at the example, and please improve this example. Just a cover story. Um, they should improve this worked example by good self-explanation prompts for this friend or so. Yeah, that's but, good. It's a good idea.
0: Lots of lots of ideas thrown around. One question that has come to me here is what is the role of a student's innate curiosity in their propensity to self-explain? Like, could could maybe this differentiating factor between self-explainers and, and not such successful self-explainers given be, given that it's so dependent on how much mental effort people are willing to expend to actually explain to themselves, could it just be curiosity that's driving the difference?
1: It may be curiosity or other might call it need for cognition this is another psychological construct or other may may call it goal orientation whether they have more mastery orientation or more this achievement orientation so some want to really understand this stuff whether others just want to get a fine grade or so and i think yeah yeah i'm not sure whether what is the best construct to to use i, I think uh All these constructs have a a valid perspective, but the core of all this perspective is that there's a habitual difference between some students who have this curiosity, this mastery orientation, or however you might call it, and others uh, who don't. And it might also be connected. I can imagine that also differences if you are a freak of, of biology that people do something in biology, but they have this negative self-concept in, in mathematics, this mixed fixed mindset, this performance orientation and and they don't do it. So it's probably will also support people in doing that if you if you make mathematics more interesting. And not by external but not by external chocolate covers, I think. This is also a discussion that I often have with other researchers and teachers, I think it's not a good idea, or or just a help tool for short-term purposes to put a, a chocolate cover about around it, because it that, that doesn't really then maybe just the, the chocolate cover is interesting, but the mathematics doesn't get in itself more interesting. There must be some value, some perceived value in 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 mathematics, and then I, I'm more curious or more mastery-oriented to try to understand it. So do you know the difference in, in interest theory between elicit and maintained? So if you have sex arrangement, so the question is how do you get interested in math? And a usual theory or a prominent theory by Hedy and Raninger is, that it starts often with situational interest, interest that is evoked by situational features. And these features can be chocolate covers, sexy things, or nice pictures that you have. But this is very short-term. If that, uh, even that the situational interest uh, is maintained, or the catch and the hold component of interest, that it's hold, it is maintained, that the students need to see some value in it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then only in the long run, uh, also this individual interest erases. So to sum up, what I'm trying to say that the curiosity or the mastery orientation is probably higher if you are interested in the subject. And to raise interest in the subject, it's probably important not to to use fancy gimmicks or nice cover stories, but Really to show up the value of the subject or the relevance.
0: Totally. Totally. And what I was, something you kind of touched on before that I found interesting, I've thought about a little bit, was... Maybe students' propensity to self-explain is just completely different in different subjects based upon their interests. Maybe the student who doesn't want to self-explain in any of their academic subjects, you put them in the woodworking workshop and suddenly they're trying to work out exactly how to use the the sander to get the smoothest finish or something like that. And then you ask them about it and they can explain it perfectly to you because they were curious enough to, to go that deep. So that's another thing I haven't thought about there. Uh, another thing, building on what you were saying about the catch and hold idea, that reminds me of... I used to be really into climate change activism, and we always used to talk about how can we get people to put more solar panels on their roofs, for example. And I read some research that said, if you want to reduce emissions, you can get people to put solar panels on their roofs by emphasizing the chocolate coating, and to use your words, and the chocolate coating is that they'll save money on their power bill. But what happens in that case is you get this rebound effect and they take the money they saved and they buy a plane ticket to go on a holiday and they end up with more emissions in the, than they would have had in the first place. But whereas you actually have to drive to the heart of things and say, well, the reason you get solar panels is to reduce emissions and then you know mitigate climate change, and then you're going to get that long-term sticking power, that hole that you were talking about. So just another cross-domain example to kind of link, link things through there. Yeah. Well,
1: you, you, you buy a, a plane ticket or even you – you don't care about so much about your consumption anymore because you have this electricity thing on, on your roof, uh, this solar plant.
0: Yeah, so you buy more appliances because you can power them all more cheaply. Jevons' paradox, yeah, totally. All right, I think that's a thorough discussion of self-explanation. I wanted to, in this last portion of our interview, Alexander, turn to some another area of your research, and that is an area that I'm particularly excited about the future of. This is the combination of cognitive load theory with self-regulated learning. As far as I'm aware, you're heavily involved in a research project called EARLY, something like that. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it, but I assume that's how you pronounce it. And you're looking at trying to bring together these two fields that some would say are very, have always been thought of as quite different. Cognitive load theory and self-regulation. Can you tell us what's, what's happening in this space at the moment?
1: EARLY is an association that gave us money for it. EARLY is the European Association for Research on Learning and Instruction. And I think there are two main research conferences in in the area of education. One is the AURA conference, uh, the American conference, and the other is the early conference every second year. And it's also, I think, a lot of Australians sometimes also go to EARLY. And early has many activities, among others, they sponsored emerging field groups. And we, we made an application to this emerging field group and to bring these two things together. And it's to be honest, it's mainly Netherlands, Germany, and they were with satellites from other countries such as Spain and Canada. But somehow it in, in the Netherlands and Germany in, in the last decade, a lot of educational research came up. And so Within the European context, these two countries are really very active, and so many activities start from these two countries, especially the Netherlands. If you see how how there are 80 million people or so, I think the Netherlands are the world champions in educational research if you take the size of the Netherlands into account. And from my personal perspective, maybe I, I... I'd say a little bit different as, as others from the thing is the, the self-regulated learning theories have always the focus on the learner side, how she or he learns, and the cognitive load perspective has much focus on the instructional design side, so it, it, This is also the, the new paper from 2019 that I just said it's mainly about instructional design. And it's paradox that these things are not viewed together because there is never a situation where learning is just determined by the learner activities. And there's never a situation where learning is just determined by the instructional design. And I think it's sometimes people do a a wrong dichotomy that is a self-regulated learning or other regulated external regulation it's it's always a, a, a spectrum. For example, worked example uh, learning arrangement are seen as, as heavily external guidance, especially if you have self-explanation prompt and so on. but in the end it's the self-regulation how well they respond to this to these prompts and so you 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 cannot control by instructional design what what the learner is doing and on the other side, if you have self-regulated learning, it's never totally self-regulated. You, you might read a text, but the text may be full of instructional ideas or, or what, what the author thought, how to guide. So on um, so and as I, I deeply believe that in most cases, especially in classroom instruction, there's always both involved, self-regulation and external regulation. It, it's, it's, it's very important to put these perspectives together. And to see that instructional design doesn't automatically always work as you as you think, because learners do different things with your instructional design, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. So, yeah, and and that's why I think it's important to bring these things together. And one one of the the papers that uh, have appeared or that will appear in a special issue in Education Psychology Review. I think you also went through this paper by Alexander Eitel and colleagues, we included, is where we gave also the example that sometimes uh, the students self-manage their cognitive load and negative or positive effects might not appear that cognitive load theory might expect because they have, for example, negative effects because they manage the uh, cognitive load in a clever way For example, if you have two separated uh, information sources, you have the split attention effect. But some people, it's also known from the research on multiple external representations, nevertheless can map these text and picture information very well. Some people don't. And so, yeah, it's it's important to to see these two things together because in most learning situations, both aspects work together, and determine the final learning outcomes.
0: That's great. And I mean, one of the findings that I was interested in that paper that you sent me was it really highlighted the importance of one, motivation, and two, kind of willpower or stamina for the cognitive load effects to show up. And what you talked about was the way in which when students are fresh, and they've got lots of energy and mental acuity left, they can actually often overcome poor instruction by you know, concentrating harder or directing their attention more effectively. But as they get more and more tired or less and less motivated, the instructional design plays an even more important role in determining how much they learn from it. So that was one example of, of one of the effects that you talk about in bringing these two fields together. Are there any kind of other, other ideas that you wanted to highlight?
1: Maybe I, I, I want to... Uh, elaborate on this because uh, this is a very interesting result for us too, because we expected uh, the opposite. More specifically, the, the study where you were talking about, or the research, was about seductive details, and seductive details are nice pictures, are chocolate covers, so to say, and usually you find in 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 short term that they are, they are detrimental because. They uh, distract from the main issues of the learning contents. On the other side, you can imagine that the chocolate cover might also hold motivation. If you get tired or lose willpower, then you may be better hold at the instructional materials. So uh, the distractive details might also have this. They are defined to raise interest or to elicit interest, but to to distract. And so we thought in the long run, this positive effect of raising interest might be especially good. And what we also did, we told them that these seductive details are not these pictures and little texts in, in, in the upper part of the screen are not uh, related to the central learning goals. So we we could, could get rid of the seductive detail effect by informing that the student that they could, should not concentrate on this motivating stuff. So at least. But with time, obviously it was not that the positive motivational aspect of these seductive details come to bear and hold them at working, but it get it harder to be not sed- seduced. So they were seduced with time. So uh that's that's an interesting issue. Um, And other things are that are interesting. Maybe just one other example is in cognitive load theory, you often do uh, variations to 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 change mental load, to reduce mental load or mental effort by reducing split attention effects, something like that. Or sometimes if you have prompts. For self explanation, you want to heighten a mental load, but more germane load, of course. But what the metacognitive guys or the self regulation guys said that the load you have or the effort you experience also informs you about your judgments of learning, whether you have understood something or not. And this is metacognitively interesting because if you misjudge what people often do, that you have learned something, yet then you put not additional learning efforts in it anymore, or you do not do remedial efforts to close your knowledge gaps. So well, the tools are important. And now you get aware as a cognitive load researcher that you varying the mental effort is probably also varying metacognitive judgments whether you have learned something or not. And the usual thing is First of all, if you say, people say if something takes a lot of mental effort, they have less judgment of learning. They more have the feeling that they didn't understand. But we also found that it's a subtlety how you ask people. If the people are feeling that the effort was more imposed by the material, then it's the case that much mental effort indicates problems in understanding. But if they have the feeling that my effort was more imposed by myself because I'm a habitual to, habitual self-explainer, if I brought the effort to the materials, then it can turn around. That much effort can mean I have a better understanding. It's also interesting stuff that is uh, discussed and researched.
0: That's fascinating because in the cognitive load theory studies, they very, very frequently ask students to self-rate the level of cognitive load, which is usually in the form of a question of like, how hard did you have to think about this kind of a question or something like this? And what you're saying is potentially, it isn't a simple kind of one-step relationship between the cognitive load and the learning. There's potentially a mediating factor in between, which is the cognitive load leads to an impression of the rate of learning, which then influences how hard the students try in the next step. So there's a mediator in there that can kind of yeah. change the change the learning that occurs. So that just adds a whole new kind of second order effect into cognitive load theory. That's fascinating.
1: And even how you even may, so the metacognitive perspective always thinks about cues that are used to uh, inform my judgment what I've learned. And if you ask people how difficult, sometimes cognitive load, people ask that, or if the learning material, you you suggest use other cues if you ask how much mental effort did you invest in understanding the stuff. So this can make, not only in terms of measurement, a difference, but also in terms of what what cue is used for this metacognitive judgment, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's really interesting. Where are you hoping that this research will lead
1: to or Yeah, I think well, my hope is that in in research and self-regulated learning more auto instructional design factors are considered and to analyze also the dependence of self-regulation on on which instructional design is is, is given. And vice versa, that it's a more different, differentiated view with instructional design research that it's not a naively expected that I do an instructional design uh, measure or, or thing, and then the students will all do what I expect. I have also often argued, as an instructional designer, how can you expect that the students know your idea of your instructional design thing? So... That's also a question you you should ask yourself if you do something as an instructional designer or as a teacher, that it may also sometimes be sensible to inform the students why you ask these questions or why you do this cooperative learning method. So they also react in the way you expected them to react. And if you provide a reason for that, then they might also see why they should react in this way. Personally, I found this uh, especially uh, relevant also in cooperative learning settings, because I do that often in in university teaching, and mostly students have made negative experiences in school with cooperative learning, so they hate it. But I usually explain why we are doing that, and what the function is, and what the outcome should be, and this helps a lot. What do you say? Yeah, it depends on the specific function on, of the cooperative learning method. I said now we discussed the, the main issues of direct training and now we, we split up in groups of four and think about how to apply the principle of modeling to a specific, to the training of a specific strategy. And this has the function that you know how to, that you, that you think through how to apply this theoretical knowledge to practical cases. So oh, it, it can be everything. It's, it's, a, it's then important that you as a teacher has a good idea, that you do not uh, do just group work because it's sexy or because people think you should not uh, make a direct instruction, but also group work, but that you can say, what is the function of uh, my group work in the next phase? And then if you know that, you can also tell it to the students.
0: That's a great point that applies to all teaching. A great takeaway there, Alexander. Some closing questions. What are you currently really excited about, Alexander?
1: About stand-up pedaling and hoppy IPA beers with fruity flavors? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just joke. No, that's true. but uh, <laughs> That's okay. I like IPAs as well.
0: What was the first thing you said? Stand-up
1: pedaling? Yeah. What do you mean? On a bicycle? Yeah. Is it not? No. Is it not so widespread in Australia? It's everybody do, oh, does paddling. it paddling in Europe. Paddling. paddle,
0: Ah, oh, paddle, yeah, stand-up paddling. Oh, okay. Isn't it? Isn't it a bit cold if you fall in the lake there in Germany?
1: Uh, first of all, in summer, the, the lakes are not cold. And secondly, I have uh, good equipment. If it's uh, cold at times, I have a neoprene. Is it an English word? Neoprene.
0: Wetsuit. Wetsuit,
1: yeah. As a wetsuit, yeah. So, at, uh, and we have also a vacation spot in north of Italy. But we are living here in the warmest part of Germany and it's, it's not so cold here. But of course, in winter, I don't do stand-up paddling in winter. That's
0: Stand-up paddling and fruity and hoppy IPAs. Love it. I'm more of a vice-beer man than the, the fruity, hoppy IPA man, but I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, what about in terms of education?
1: I also like Weissbier, I also like a, a lot of wines. So. <laughs> in terms of education, so we have some, quite a few lines of research. And what is also heavily in my mind presently is there is all this research on generative learning or meaningful learning activities, like fostering students' learning strategies by reflective writing. We have this research by fostering self explanations, all this. Learning strategy, getting a deeper understanding. And then there is this other quite uh, well known research now that's use the label testing effect or retrieval pack practice, who are saying that the long term knowledge uh, you need to have uh, retrieval practice or test instead of restudy and stuff. And sometimes people say make studies which compare this stuff like Kalpiki compares concept mapping with retrieval practice, but that doesn't make sense because one thing is for having a deeper understanding, and the other thing is for consolidating knowledge structure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so
1: we are, we are planning projects or have already published papers on comparing, not comparing, combining both. So how how can you combine this idea that uh, you have an understanding, but the understanding is also provided or is 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 given on a on a longer term. For example, also in the, I think it's a meta analysis by Bethany Little Johnson who found that on the short term, self-explanation prompts are quite good, but if you have this delayed post test, so there's a pretty much of a decline. For example, how can you combine self-explaining? and this retrieval practice uh, stuff so that you have lasting understanding. So that's something that we try to accomplish or to do studies at.
0: That's great. And that's, you know, the comment you made there about the Karpiki study that compared concept mapping to retrieval practice, that comes back to the point you made right at the end there, which was about understanding the function of the instruction that you're using. And my, my colleague, George Zonios, who I'm working on with some learning software, Dendro at the moment, the way he explains retrieval practice is he says, retrieval practice is like reinforcing the snapshot of the learning that has taken place. But the learning has to take place for you to generate a high high quality or high resolution snapshot for you to then maintain over the long term, so I think that's a that's another helpful way to way to talk about that
1: yeah yeah thanks <laughs> yeah, this connects also to these learning journal studies because retrieval practice often consists of making a free recall. you have read a text now make a free recall everything you remember, but what we have found that this is this a little bit like journal writing, but unprompted, which is not optimal. And so we have this, free recall in first studies situation, but we in, enrich this with an elaboration prompt. Remember everything you can remember from the text and generate an own example, or the generate own examples for the main concepts and so. And so this so sometimes I think it, it sounds a little bit chaotic what different types of research I do because there are so different labels are on it, but typically there's a straddle. So we, we stand with one foot in the old topic and go to the new topic. So there are always interconnections, so to say. So this. Idea with journal writing and combining generative and consolidation perspectives uh, also connects again. Also. So, so that's fun. I, I like to to do the straddling, so to say, to to take something from the old things that I've done and and to sit, uh, to, to put the other food in in a new area.
0: That's great. And I mean, you can do that when when you are looking at the functions behind things. And when you understand the functions and mechanisms, then you can combine things in ways that make sense to enhance the overall learning experience. So that's wonderful. If you could name three papers that you think it's most important for teachers to read, what would you say that'd be?
1: That's a very different, uh, uh, very difficult question. I'm almost reluctant to (laughs) provide an answer because it depends on prior knowledge. There are these teachers who can read everything, and at least in Germany, teachers are very heterogeneous. Some would not understand these texts I I have sent you. Other teachers may have totally different beliefs uh, or uh, socialization. They don't believe in this empirical research or Many teachers are teachers are very skeptical about worked examples because they see this as old fashioned pedagogy and and things like that, and then you need also special text for these readers to in Germany you set them to get them where they are so see dot up to hold they are at a specific point and you have to drive to that specific point to to take yeah. them with you so I don't know how to formulate that in English.
0: We say meet them where they are.
1: Meet them where they are, exactly. That's, and other teachers may have, you obviously make a lot of, invest a lot of thinking how to improve them and cry and they need other. Te- I don't know whether text helps, but I, I think teachers can have so many different main problems in their teaching. They can teach different subjects and so. I don't think that there there are three texts or the text that is good for teachers in general. But if you, I I can imagine that you insist upon something and then I give a very very egocentric answer. If people listen to this talk or to this interview, then they might be interested in worked examples and in self-explanation. And if they are used to read scientific Papers, uh, I think the Renkel paper on on this instructionally oriented theory of example based learning in cognitive science from 2014 might be worth to be read or have a look. Or well, I also like this Renkel and Eitel paper from 2019 on self explanation, learning about principles in their application. I think you read this paper already. I think it's not too hard to digest. It's definitely easier to digest as the cognitive science paper. And what I also would recommend is a Rangel 2015 paper, Different Roads lead to Rome. That's a German saying, at least. If there's always multiple ways to achieve something, you say, different roads lead to Rome. And a special point in this paper is that many people have a special view of what active learning is. Uh, active learning is if the people do something that is visible. And I think this is not a helpful view on active learning. And in this paper, three views of on active learning are discussed whether it's more this responding theory of active learning that you see something, or whether it's more hands, uh, minds on, or it's more mental activity, or my own perspective is it's not only mental activity with stuff that it's more a focused activity focused for example on the principles and to reflect about these three perspectives active responding active processing and focused processing might also be helpful to design your instruction because it might help you to think does this idea this group work, this prompt or whatsoever, does it have the function that I really want it to have? And that helps really now the students to see the underlying principle or to see the difference between with or without replacement or between a deontological and, and a consequentialist argument or whatsoever. So sorry, this was a long answer.
0: <laughs> a long but interesting one, Alexander. And before we close, any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do?
1: Yeah, so I don't know how the situation is in Australia, but uh, not it's not the ma- majority of German teachers who are have a favorite or a positive attitude toward empirical research. And I think, uh, and, and sometimes they feel also a uh, bashed by now many politicians that they say, ah, oh, teachers, they just teach intuitively and there's evidence they should stop teaching intuitively, but they should now teach evidence-based. But This is also nonsense because research doesn't tell you all the details you have to do in a classroom. So I, I would say teachers should be proud of the practical experience, they should value the practical experience, but they should also acknowledge that research has clever things to to offer. And it's, it's rewarding and it's fun to try out things that research suggests, and I would encourage to do that. And this doesn't mean that I should abandon all my practical experience in the opposite often needed to tailor an idea from science to to my classroom to my subject to my context to the habits of my students it must also in a certain sense fit to my teaching style that might be a terrific idea but it, it, it doesn't fit to the rest of how I teach then it's also maybe not and then I try to adapt these things to your context and the third thing is but you Have in mind that an instructional proposal from science has a a basic idea, and sometimes it happens if teachers adapt that they destroy the basic idea. So if you adapt it, have always the basic idea, the basic function it has in mind, and be careful that the adaptation doesn't destroy it. So maybe this was a a very um, lecturing statement, but... That's
0: how I feel. No worries, Alexander Renkel. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been, for me at least, an incredibly stimulating discussion. It's been an honour to speak with you about these issues because I came across your 1997 paper about self-explanation a few years ago now, and it's really stuck with me as one of the, you know, one of the key papers that helped me see what's going on in my students' minds at a different level. I don't know if I've quite cracked how to get students to be better at self-explainers as yet, maybe maybe in some small ways, but there's definitely a long way to go for me. And I really hope someone does the study at some point of how to turn poorer learners into more successful learners in the long term. But irrespective of that, whether or not that happens, I look forward to reading more of your research in future.
1: Yeah, thank you to have this opportunity to to share my viewpoints and I think you are on a pretty good way to foster your students' self-explanation abilities. And for a teacher, you are extremely well-informed. So so my congratulations to your knowledge about research and to your enthusiasm to try it out in your classroom. So thank you.
0: Thanks, Alexander. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Alexander Renkel. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And that also includes that link that you can use to get 30% off all books with John Cat Educational. Again, that code was ERRR30. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections about this episode or any other episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time,
1: keep learning.